Welcome to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help you, the technology professional, accelerate your career progression, increase your job satisfaction, and be more effective in your existing role. We want to bring listeners like you the career advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm John White at VJourneyman on Twitter, sharing co-host duties with Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore. We're two former IT operations guys who have moved on to pre-sales roles with technology vendors. We have our opinions, but we also like to highlight the journeys of others and see what we can learn from them. We'd also like to ask for your feedback to make this a conversation, not a one-way broadcast. Email us at nerdjourneypodcast at gmail.com or DM us at nerdjourney on Twitter. So come join us on our nerd journey. Let's take a trip. Episode 263 is now underway. Every time we interview someone on the show, it's like a point-in-time capture of their career story. So this week, we get to catch up and see what's changed since we last left former guest Brad Christian. As of this recording, he's a solutions specialist at Computer Center. And when we last left Brad over 100 episodes ago, he was a people leader of a pre-sales team at a software company. Here's some of the things you can expect to hear in this discussion with Brad. We're going to talk about what good managers do and what the role of a player coach really is. How does that tie into servant leadership, by the way? We've had a number of guests on the show who have talked about life at a startup and their reasons for joining one. For Brad, it was about being confident that he would work with smart, capable people. Well, what do you do when those smart, capable people leave the company? and you haven't. That's a difficult situation. Brad had to figure out what to do in that situation and found himself getting shifted into the role of a cloud economist. He shares the story of learning about cloud economics and FinOps, something he's certified in today. What's the value to any IT practitioner of learning FinOps, by the way? We'll also speak to some of the reasons Brad likes to pursue technical certifications. Let's see if any of these resonate with you. Here we go with part one of our discussion with Brad Christian. Brad Christian, welcome back to the Nerd Journey podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Hey, it's been over 100 episodes since we talked to you. I think uh, if listeners want to go back episode 113 and 114 i believe can you catch us up on what you're up to these days uh sure so um you know i was a long-term you know vmware person now though i've moved on it has nothing to do with broadcom by the way uh me changing precedes all that and this changing bread or set of changes as we'll learn about actually put you at a var or a value-added reseller right it's actually out of the uk it's called computer center so it's actually a very, very large VAR that started in EMEA and it, but really attracted me to it. And we'll talk more about this later. But a big part of it was its international capabilities on supply chains and stuff like that. But um, I'm there now. I'm out of Dallas, Texas still. So uh, basically my patch is Tulla, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arkansas. But I live uh, down the street from Nick, so... Mainly, I'm a, I'm a Frisco guy, so I'm in North, North Dallas most of the time. And by down the street, he means from there to Fort Worth, so a good 50 minutes, no traffic. <laughs> we 
we're in Texas. I mean, it's everything's a 50 minute drive. So you alluded to it, Brad. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition uh, away from VMware? Yeah, sure. So just so you know, uh, I've been in the VMware ecosystem for a really long time. So all the way back to VMware GSX, you know, when vMotion first showed up, that kind of stuff. But I became the, the vMug leader for Dallas-Fort Worth a really long time ago. Studied for the VCDX, got that. When that happens, you tend to go work for VMware. So I did that for nearly eight years. Most of that in the networking and security business unit. Mainly I was uh, doing NSX as well as some of those other products. Did that for a really long stretch. Got promoted actually very early into it. I was a frontline manager, kind of a player coach. Did that for a long time. So uh, it was about time to move on. I was starting to feel technically stale. I will always have wonderful memories about VMware and what it did for my career, what it did for my family. But, you know, it, it was time to move on to something else. And um, I've always been a Linux nerd deep down. I've always actually believed in Linux. And I had a chance actually to go do some Apache software working for a startup. So when that, that opportunity came, I took it. Had you worked for a startup before that, Brad? I had not. And it had always felt like a, like a gap in my resume or a gap in my understanding of the way our industry works. So this opportunity came up. I was a little nervous about it because, you know, I'd, I'd worked for either customers, very large customers, Fortune 500 companies, or I'd worked for Avar. I did that for a good long stretch. And then VMware itself. And, you know, VMware at the time was the fourth largest software company in the world. So it's this big, successful, process-oriented, career track, you know, oriented kind of company. And so living and going to a startup was kind of scary. But it's something I felt like I needed to do to just understand the way the world works. So I want to ask about that. Having been through the startup experience, what are some of the things you wish you had asked about the startup before you took the job? Oh, boy, there's a lot. First off, if you're if you're uh, considering going to a startup and you're used to large process oriented environments, if, if something doesn't exist, you're like, don't complain. Because if you complain, you're, you just got a new task, right? So, you know, a lot of the stuff wasn't there. But I, I should probably back up a little bit because the reason I went to this particular company, it wasn't technical. It had to do with people. So if, if you've been a leader for any length of time, um, you will notice that, you know, first off, let's just define some stuff. So there's a frontline manager, which is what I've always been. I have never been particularly interested in going to director or hire. So a director manages managers, right? And then you keep going up. If you're in this game long enough, you'll notice that these herds of people move around together, usually around one leader. A lot of people get angry and bitter when they see this kind of thing happening. Like some new leader comes in and he brings in his people. I think it's just a perfectly natural part of life that you want to work with people uh, that you know and trust, right? That are going to have your back so that you can build out organizations. And when, when somebody's built a dream team, you know, they like to keep the team together. So I've seen several iterations of that when I was at VMware. You know, I've seen it at customers. I've, I've walked into a customer once, you know, seen a whole team. A year later, I go to a completely different company and they're all there. I'm like, wait a minute, right? So it's, you see that a lot. Well, I actually got invited to go join one of those herds of people that was going to a new company. I won't say the name of the company. Just know it was a Apache software company. It was a startup that had been around for a while and it had some proven leadership, but a leader uh, actually at VMware came to me who was in tech marketing 
and asked me to come with a group of seven other people to go build out the leadership organization for a marketing department at this startup. Now, the reason I was invited was I'd, I'd been in the field a lot. I've built a lot of field teams, hired a lot of SEs. So I kind of, I knew what I was doing and I was an old hat. This role was, to me, I considered an evolution. Uh, it was leadership, but it was about field enablement. So if you've been an SE or, or gone out there and sold, going to tech marketing is really a, kind of an, either going to leadership or you go into tech marketing, in my opinion. Because what you're doing is you're crafting what the pitch is, you're creating the decks, you're, you're doing the, the art of, of pre-sales, which is taking complicated subjects and breaking them down and making them simpler. So I was brought in on this A-team. It's like the old A-team series, if you remember that from the 80s. Uh, I was brought in to be face, <laughs> to come in and be the one that was going to work on the new hire setup. The, this company did not have a great onboarding process. And things didn't actually go very well, but <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute. It's always a high compliment when someone else thinks of you for an opportunity. Does that make it something that you place more weight on when really thinking through what made sense for you? I mean, sure, that is flattering. But you know the way it was pitched to me, you know, moving over to the startup, it, it was a bunch of people that got together. We had all seen this, you know, these leadership moves, you know, people going in herds and then being asked to be part of that. And, and really what the way everybody put it was you get to work with somebody you trust that you know and you like. Uh, and I mean, because how often are you in a, a Zoom every day talking for hours and hours every day for years sometimes? So wouldn't it be great to go with somebody that, you know, with a group of people that you already knew and trusted and you knew they were competent? That right there, it wasn't just the that I felt flattered or anything. It's that I knew that the people I'd be working with were smart because I'm decently smart, but I like to be around other smart people, steel, sharpen steel, you know, that kind of thing. So knowing you're going to be around top, top folks is, is awesome. And the, the people that I was invited to come with, you know, there's people that I had a lot of respect for and were super smart. And I knew that I would learn. I have no marketing background. I'm just field. These folks, though, were real marketing people. They knew how to do marketing research. They knew how to go out and, and do impressions out there. They knew how to create marketing qualified leads. You know, there was a whole black art to that that I got really exposed to and really learned, which was very cool. Um, stuff you couldn't learn in school. One of the things that we've come across when talking to people about and getting advice about picking a place to work are, are things like, work-life balance, culture, the people that you're working with. But I think this might be the first time that we've talked to somebody who said, I didn't necessarily know much about the other things, including maybe, you know, the history or the, the future of the company. But I did know the people that I would be working with, and that trumped almost everything else. Am I putting words in your mouth there? I think that there was just two big things. One was at almost a religious imperative around Linux um, mm -hmm. to at least go out there and be heavily involved in an open source project at least once. I had to go do right. it. There was that. But yeah, it was the people. It was the people I knew I could trust, you know, that I would learn from. So yeah, that was super important. And the story gets really bad because of what happened shortly after that. Well, I think that one of the things that we've heard from people at startups is if you're working at a big company because you think that represents stability, 
it is just that you think it represents stability. But I think that we've all seen in the past few years that the biggest companies in the world are willy nilly cutting people, you know, I mean, I got caught up in a 12,000 person downsizing at Google, right? That there's just no, there's no certainty around working at an established company. There's the illusion of that certainty though. And maybe that's important for some people as long as they realize that that's all it is. Yeah. And I've been involved in, in layoffs myself as a manager. And I would like to tell you that there's careful thought meticulous attention to detail that goes into planning those kind of things. No, <laughs> not even close. They're, they're very messy. Decisions are made on spreadsheets and decisions are never made at the director level. I mean, sometimes managers and directors can go in there and fight for certain people, but when it comes to selecting who gets the ax, it's usually done on a spreadsheet. It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, I think my frontline manager contacted me two months later saying, Wait, I just heard that you were downsized. <laughs> I, I think, you know, less about me and more about, you know, the situation of, you know, the illusion of stability. You know, whether you're working at a large company or you're working at a startup, I think maybe there's, there's less differentiation between stability than, than people might think. On the other hand, like what you just said or alluded to was like there might not be structures in place that one would experience at a larger company around, you know, some of the institutions that you would, you would think like, a you know, Hey, this is the, the standard marketing playbook, or this is the standard product management playbook, or, you know, GA rollout playbook, like those things might need to be built while you're there. And was that part of what was maybe attractive to it as well? Attractive about it? Well, the fact that you know how to do something, you know, I know how to use Salesforce. I know how to build territories. I know how to do territory account planning. I know how to recruit. I know how to train. I knew, it, it's all stuff I knew how to do, but I had never done it from scratch. And that was attractive, being able to go into a place that maybe did not have things built out like they needed to be. Knowing that I could come in there and I had a playbook and that I could quickly build the procedures and the structures. Oh, absolutely. That was attractive and something I knew I could do quickly and be successful. So sure. This is the architectural learnings applied in a new area is what I just heard. Oh, you know, completely. I, the term full stack gets butchered a lot, but I, I know that in my career, I've never wanted to stay in one area too long, whether it was storage or networking. I've, you know, I've always moved around to keep learning and that includes being an architect, but a manager itself. I mean, I would say that's very much a skill doing that, building a sales team, that, that is a skill. So moving around and doing all that, absolutely. And so in, in this case, it was being in marketing, being in tech marketing meant that I could take all these things I knew how to do as a, as a pre-sales leader and create stuff from the next level up. And you mentioned not necessarily wanting to follow the management career path so I'm guessing that perhaps even if you hadn't left to take that opportunity, you might have sought out something as an individual contributor, no matter what. Well, I, I will say I, I was a manager at VMware for seven years. It is so hard to stay technical, to, to keep up with what's going on. You know, there's bad parts to being a manager, just like any other job. There's so many meetings you get 
forecast calls. Uh, I mean, things like that. They just suck your day away and they're, you know, they're, they're meaningless. So it becomes really hard to spend the time to stay technical, just to go do hands-on labs, you know, that, that kind of thing to, to, to keep your hand in can be really, really hard. And you're pulled in so many directions and you're putting up fires, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because if you're a good manager, I mean, what are you doing? You're, you're not making yourself look good. You look good because of what your people are doing. And so I considered it my job to make, to make my folks look really good, to promote what they were doing. And in return that, you know, that helps yourself. And I always had a large team for whatever reason, I would have 13 folks or so reporting to me. And to me, I, the biggest compliment I, I had, you know, as a manager was none of my folks got laid off when Broadcom bought VMware, not a single one, because they were all just flat out. They're the A-team. They were awesome. Um, they were all unicorns, all super technical, but also outgoing and, and passionate and all those kind of things. So, you know, I built a team for uh, Cloud Foundation, um, you know, VSAN, and also for networking and security. And all those folks are still at Broadcom or, you know, however they're, or VMware with Broadcom, <laughs> whatever it's called, but they're all still there. To me, my folks, you know, still being around, I, I think that's the best testament to the skill I had as a leader was picking the right folks and enabling them to succeed. Uh, there are other kinds of leaders, you know, that are very busy tooting their own horn. When you're, when you're, when you're tooting your own horn and, and working on your own initiatives, you do have more time to be technical and, and keep skilled. But if you're trying to be a servant leader or a player coach, there's a couple of different ways of putting it, then you just don't have that time. Can you just define what you mean when you say player coach? Because I know we've used the term multiple times on the podcast. Uh, some might call it a person who has both people management responsibilities, but they also have some individual contributor metrics that they have to hit. So let's just define that term from your perspective so that it gives context. Yeah. So I don't think that the metrics matter at all. I, it's more about an attitude. And I think of it like, you know, the, the very first football teams, you know, the, the quarterback would be the coach, <laughs> you know, for obvious reasons, you've got to split those roles up at a certain scale. But having somebody who's in there as the quarterback, who hands off the ball, that's the right, that, to me, that's what a player coach is. You are watching what's happening in the field. You're watching and you're, you're seeing where the holes are. You're seeing where the gaps are and you're filling them. But you're, you're a player. You're absolutely in there player. As a pre-sales engineer, that means that you're actually going out and calling on customers. And to me, the funnest part of doing pre-sales is whiteboarding, getting out, finding out business problems. My favorite thing in the world is when a, when a customer turns to me and goes, that'll save me like five hours a week. I love those moments. That's what really gets me out of bed in the morning. A player coach can keep doing that and, and be out there actively um, engaging with customers. When you have enough direct reports and there's, a, there's so much going on that you can no longer go out in the field, you're not a player coach anymore. And when you have that many direct reports, it means you're, you're not a player anymore. You're signing expense reports, <laughs> you know? You're too busy to actually be out there having a, a, you know, knowing what the pulse is with customers. Anyways, that's all a long-winded way of saying a, a player coach is, it's not about responsibilities on paper. It's the fact that you're actually out there participating in the activity that the organization is busy doing. And there is a verisimilitude 
that a player coach has when it comes to that role that you don't get from, you know, some, some pre-sales managers haven't gotten the, gone out in the field in 10 years. They don't know what they're talking about. Anyways, when, anytime I feel like I'm getting to that point, it's time to change roles for a while. That's so interesting. I, it, it really rings true with a lot of my experiences in this past year as a first-time manager of a systems engineering team. So yeah, I, I really appreciate that, that commentary. I think maybe for some of the people who have listened along with us, there's the, the gap when we, I think when you say technical, you know, it's easy to become less technical. You're talking about technical in the product that you are involved with. Um, and maybe the, the, the technical parts of implementation and the operating systems and, and things like that. I've noticed that there is like a, a certain amount of technical skill in just being a frontline manager. Although those are, it tends to be very, you know, soft skills and it's about people management. There's technical skills involved in people management. But I, th mm -hmm. I think when you say less technical, that's not what you're talking about. Just to be clear, right? So there's two buckets there. One is the product you're selling and it's, that's not too hard. There's the PMs are building into the product. You know what the, what the roadmap is. All that stuff's fairly easy to stay abreast of because you don't really have a choice. When I say technical, I mean what's happening in real businesses. What are the, what are the concerns? What's happening on, out at the street level, right? I consider the reason I was a, always good at pre-sales was because I was a customer for years before I went into pre-sales. And I'm sorry, I, I'm going to have a level of skill at relating to customers that people who got went out of college and went into sales that they're just not going to have. I've gotten that call at two in the morning. So there's a big difference there. But so that when I say technical, that's what I mean. It's keeping your, your fingers on the pulse of what's happening in the industry. So one of the things, like an example of that might be a generation of people who missed the transition between logging into individual hosts to do system administrative work, and they've missed the transition to tools like Ansible or Terraform for deployment and kind of management. Uh, so if you've, if you've missed that transition, then you've kind of lost a, a level of, of technical ability and, and relatability. Yeah, totally. I would even go so far as to say that cloud, you know, there's lots of great and, and not so great points about cloud, but one thing it has done is cripple a generation of engineers because they did not go what we went through, you know, getting things to work. I would say that uh, it's, it's not been good because I, I, I've seen it in my career. The pendulum always swings, right? Things will eventually move back. Some workloads will come back on-prem. Things will always move around. Mainframes still run most credit card transactions. Did you know that? Right? They're not going anywhere. Um, but people who know how to work on all that infrastructure are aging. And I, I, I'm shocked at some of the younger folks, you know, with startups and, and working for the, the, the fan companies that they don't know networking. Not like they should. You know, there's, there's really basic things like that that I think uh, uh, folks are missing out on. And so that, that all comes under the umbrella of being technical, but having not just depth on, in one area, but breadth. And I think breadth is, is super important. Thanks for the clarification. Um, it really helps to, I think, ground the discussion and, and understand exactly what it is that you're talking about. So going back to the startup, you understood uh, going in kind of what the, 
the requirements of building out the organization were, the constraints, uh, some of the risks that you were facing, uh, and then you had to maybe make some uh, assumptions about uh, the things that were were there that you had to do, and and then you you built out a uh, um, an architecture for for a team and uh, an infrastructure. Am I uh, putting that correctly? Yeah, I mean, um, there you know, there was just a lot of things I knew how to do as far as field enablement and all that. Unfortunately, what happened um, just a couple of months in, the leader that I was working for, the one who you know, the Hannibal of this A-team, not get along with the big boss. And there was a massive explosion of conflict of personalities and they left. So I, I got kids. It's not like I'm going to, you know, three months into a new job, go somewhere else. I was going to, you know, hold tight and see, see if I could still make this work. But this crack team of, of VMware folks, almost all of them left just in that three or four month period. I'll tell you one thing I learned about that. If I ever do go join a group of people that I respect, I'm going to make sure that they have kids because I, the attitude is a lot different <laughs> when you got mouths to feed. That's a good consideration point. It is interesting to make sure that you're all facing the same risks because I think that's the, the more general thing, right? Is uh, because they could have kids same age even, but if they're in a different, like they have unlimited financial resources from you know, maybe a, a past exit or something like that, then leaving at the drop of a hat and being out of work for two or three years while they figure out what it is that they want to do or bootstrap something else might not be something that is a constraint for them. If you have those financial constraints, then it's a constraint for you. So there I was in a in an organization I didn't know very many people, surrounded by all these developers, and uh, I didn't really know marketing that well. I knew enough to fake it. Then I get tapped on the shoulder and said that I'm a, I had a new role out of all that. And they made me a cloud economist, which I was not prepared for at all. That's a new title that is, has kind of emerged and means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Can you maybe tell us what your understanding of the role going in was? So first off, the term COGS to find an acronym. So the cost of goods sold. So the important thing to know about a SaaS service that's running on you know, AWS or Google or any of those other cloud service providers is that the SaaS company has costs that are incurred, HR level costs, the cloud costs, uh, you know, all the different costs that go into making the product have to be accounted for. Then you add a, a, a modest amount of margin and then you sell that product as a service you know, out to the industry. Understanding your COGS is really really hard. It is much harder than you would think. So just on AWS, for instance, you know, the rates change. Well, if the rates change, depending on the region, well, all of a sudden what you're charging the customer has to change, that can actually happen. So understanding the economics of that, if I ended up working with some really smart accountants and I started understanding their world, their spreadsheets, I knew at a technical level how clouds worked back in the day. It wasn't until I got the cloud economics hat on and started understanding the money involved with it. You know, and there's all sorts of things depending on the country, like Brazil. Brazil is an incredibly hard country to work in. You cannot sell a SaaS service as an American company in Brazil. It has to be Brazilian-owned, so you have to have a wholly-owned subsidiary in Brazil. That's just one small example of some of the import-export restrictions. Well, I so at first when I got the cloud economic job, I was, I don't want to talk about money and accounting stuff, but then I started to really dig deep 
And then I discovered FinOps, uh, financial DevOps. Went and read the book, when it got certified on it, started learning some of the software out there that did it. I have a feeling FinOps will, will be more and more important in our industry as time goes by. And I'm a pretty strong believer in it. It's not a, it's not a very difficult lift for, a, for anyone who's been in IT any length of time. It's hard because most of us don't like to talk about budgets or money, but FinOps is, is worth it in the long run. Even if you're not you know, working for, a, for an organization in sales or SaaS or anything like that, you know, you're just normal brick and mortar company IT person, go get certified on FinOps because how many times did VMware try to do chargeback and fail? Right. Every nobody's ever done it well. I think this is the point in time where it will start working for most organizations if they follow what the uh, Linux Foundation has built around that. Can you tell us which book that you bought? Yeah, it's the oh, it's the O'Reilly book with the bird. Oh, yeah. Okay. Cloud FinOps. Yep. So did you do coursework through the FinOps Foundation at all? I've heard of that one and I know that they have different certifications. I, I didn't know if that's where your certification was through or if it was through somewhere different. No, I, uh, you could just go buy the exam. Like it's online it's, and it's not that hard, but you definitely need to read the book and read the website. Uh, actually, if you want to actually go pass the exam, go to finops.org and read everything on that website and you can pass the test. It's all on there. It's, it's not that difficult. Okay. So that is the FinOps foundation. Got it. Yeah. But some of the stuff I read in the book was fascinating. Like, uh, you know, Target, you know, Target went through a bad time, right? With security breach, you know, a while back. But boy, they've really upped their game. So they were one of the first FinOps companies that really got FinOps working. So there's some great stuff in the book about that. But to me, what I thought was fascinating, I get a free security check every year from uh, the Office of Personal Management with the federal government. So I was recruited to go do IT for the FBI. I passed all the exams and the interviews and I turned the job down because of kids. But I was in the OPM's database and they got breached, if you remember that, gosh, like a decade ago. So they, they clearly were trying to you know, improve their game. They're probably the most mature FinOps org out there. If you want to buy SaaS software and you work for the federal government, you go through, the, through OPM, which looks at SaaS software and makes sure that that SaaS software uh, adheres to FinOps principles so that you can provide cost transparency to engineering teams. I thought that was just awesome. The fact that they did that. The U.S. federal government is the largest company in the world. And that's why everybody who works there calls it a company. Because right? it really is. But for them to get something like that in place, if, if they can do it, challenges of being that much of a behemoth, and that's how your organization can do it too. And there's a technical aspect to learning FinOps. It's still a technical thing, even though it's different set of principles that you really have to mesh together with the technology that you're using. But I'd, I don't think that in the spirit of our conversation, that somebody should see that as a, oh, if I do this, then I can't be technical anymore. I don't think it's an either or. I think it's an and. I like the way you spoke about it. Completely. Look, at the end of the day, you know, I, I've worked with developers my whole career. I've gone through periods of time where I hated them, <laughs> where I loved them. Uh, I was one for a while. But, you know, what, what has always been the hardest thing for them? And that's the budget process and understanding if, if I make a change... The production, how's it going to impact the bottom line? How's it going to make bring profit to the company? How do I get credit for making something really cool? I mean, almost never. They they almost never have the capability to show, hey, I moved our, you know, our revenue. I moved the needle. I, it's very hard to show that. I think with, if you get FinOps in place, 
and you show that you're doing cost containment, especially cloud cost containment, boy, that becomes a very powerful tool. And it helps um, justify salaries and headcount or anything else. Because what's the one thing IT is constantly having is reduction in headcount. I think if um, you're worried about, if you're a manager and you're worried about keeping you know, your team fully staffed and not losing headcount, you should be doing FinOps. Did you ever read the uh, Technologies as a Service playbook? There's one out there, I think by Thomas Law. Okay. Yeah, it uh, describes like how to roll out SaaS services. Um, and it covers a lot of what you're talking about. It's, it's really fascinating. It's a, another set of, uh, another set of tools and things that people should have in their toolbox to be able to, you know, justify projects, show increases in productivity, you know, justifying the team's existence, right? Like, here's the measure of our productivity. Why do you want to cut us? Like, the ones that you should cut would be the ones that would be lower productivity than us. Right. <laughs> you know, I got a lot of phone calls from folks at, from VMware that, you know, either reported to me or I'd mentored, you know, just asking for advice. And you know, a lot of people had gotten kind of shrill, you know, and we're talking pre-sales engineers for the most part. But I would, the, the one thing I would tell them over and over, like, number one, you're a unicorn, somebody who's technical and has people skills. You're rare. So come on, you're awesome. Uh, but the other thing besides that was how close are you to money? If you are involved in deals and you are tied to money coming in and big accounts and that kind of thing, you're going to be safe. And it doesn't matter in IT where you're at, if you're a developer or what, if you are tied to profit, the closer you are tied to that dollar symbol, the better off you are when it comes to surviving cuts. I, there's a, a gentleman here, I'll, I'll leave nameless, probably one of the best pre-sales engineers I've ever worked with. Just naturally charismatic, but he was tied to this monster account that had recently bought a, a big VMware ELA and was not going to buy anything for two or three years. I knew he was going to get laid off. I just knew it because he was not tied to any future revenue. Didn't matter how good he was or his past track record. He was not tied to any dollar signs that would be coming in for the next two years. And sure enough, uh, he got let go. I mean, it absolutely bonkers decision to let somebody that talented go, but he just wasn't close enough to, to any money coming in. It's a fascinating idea of managing your career by the metrics by which you would be judged as being important in the future, right? It's not just the stuff that you've done before, but the potential that you have to do something important in the future. And that is like a really tough way to look at things. But if you're in sales and you're not tied to incoming pipeline, then it's very easy to look at somebody and go, well, you know, the pipeline isn't there to, to justify that person, regardless of their past performance in generating pipeline, you know, future pipeline is just, you haven't done it at that exact moment. It's pretty interesting. It's, it's certainly something that, that I experienced personally, you know, like I was definitely on a sales territory that was all greenfield. And at the time I told my manager, I was like, Hey, I'm super experienced. Give me your hardest, hardest jobs. You know, what's the most difficult thing, you know, and I'm, I'll plug away at it. And the most difficult thing there was opening up greenfield territories. But that meant that I was not tied to pipeline. It's, it's probably not a, a really good way to, to construct territories. If you think about it is to have some that are 
completely greenfield because you're always going to have some people that look worse than others, regardless of how good they are. Wow, I really made that about me, didn't I? <laughs> it's just the kind of guy you are, John. Yeah. Do you want to ask me anything else, guys? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. While we're on the topic of certifications, how about we do this? You know, we talked about the FinOps certification, Brad. Yeah. I want to hear more about the marketing thing, but I, I know that right now you're doing a Red Hat certification. So can you maybe, while we're on that topic of certification, speak to what made that the right thing to chase next for as far as certifications go? And then how did you approach it differently than maybe the FinOp certification and your VCDX journey before that? Yeah. So yeah, I did the FinOps thing and, and, you know, that was certainly educational for the role I had at the time. I was the last man standing at that startup uh, in that team. My, my team actually got uh, let go. So I'm looking at where to go. I ended up, uh, you know, at the VAR I'm at now, but stepping into that role and we'll, we'll talk more about that in a sec, but I was like, I, I need to have some goals besides just sales goals, right? And what's going to be important over the next, you know, two or three years for me to study and learn? Because I, why are certifications good? They're good for me because I need structure. So I am completely obsessed with NeoVim. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with NeoVim, but Vim is, you know, the old text editor from the command line. If you could look at some blog, at uh, some YouTubers, Dev as Life, a guy named Takashi in Japan makes the greatest videos I've ever seen. He will be sitting there typing on the on this magnificent keyboard using NeoVim as his IDE. And so he's creating software in a Buddhist temple with cameras on him and then using NeoVim as right. I, I saw that video and I was like, oh, I've always wanted to become just a complete stud at, at Vim. I, I mean, I'm good at it from the Linux command line, but using it for like taking my note, I use it for everything now, whether it's code or taking notes or anything like that, it's NeoVim. And there's some other, another great YouTuber is uh, the Primogen. He's awesome. I started working on NeoVim and I spend more time working on NeoVim and the Lua files that make up the config for it than I do actually writing um, because I become obsessed with my setup. I'm constantly going in there, tweaking and changing the color scheme and I'll break something and, and it's, it's got a million plugins. So I'll end up going down these wormholes for all these plugins. I need to stay on target. That's what certifications do for me in my day job. So you're talking about like vanilla NeoVim. You're not talking about org mode in evil mode, for example. No. Okay. No. Pure no, just NeoVim. Go, yeah, go, to, go look up NeoVim. Look up the Primogen. He's uh, one of the developers at Netflix. It was, go check him out. You'll, you, you will end up going down a wormhole. But you don't need to use BS code, for instance. To me, it's like front page 98. I did web development in the 90s. I made fun of WYSIWYG editors. I still feel the same way. Go use NeoVim. And this is like press I for input to start typing, press escape to stop typing, DD deletes the line, all those commands, right? Yeah, that's the, that's the Vim keyboard motions, which save your wrists. And I'm starting to get older, so I, I really need to focus on that. But the goal is to never touch the mouse while you're in there editing. Nice. But um, I, I spend so much time working on NeoVim. I, I do way, way more of that than I do you know, actually working. So I, I need structure, and that's what a certification program does for me. You know, I was heavily involved in, in VMware certs and worked on the questions for some of them. Having a blueprint really does force you to have a course of study. Um, it gives you a syllabus is, is really what it does. 
So do I need to go get Red Hat certified for my job? Eh, probably not. But I've always wanted the Red Hat certified engineer. I, I remember that came out, what, in 2000, something like that. I always wanted to go get that. It's a live lab exam. I always like those. But it will force me to stretch myself uh, out of my comfort zone, do some things I probably wouldn't, and just have uh, you know a, a more breadth. And it would force me to stretch. They don't have a VCDX level, but they do have architect level exams. So I'm going to rip through that. Also, you know, there's the certified uh, Kubernetes administrator, that line of exams. You know, that's what I'm going to work on. But the very first thing I did when I started the new job was ask for Pluralsight subscription. And so I'll, I'll be working on that. Can I ask how you link that to, well, I think back to what you're saying, how do you link that to revenue? So you don't, you can't. It's a cost center. It's one of the prices of doing business. You've got to stay technical. Regardless of whether you feel like going to a startup is more or less risky or just looks that way, I think we can learn a lesson from Brad's experience that following someone to a different company does not protect you if they leave. Here's what I mean by that. If you're going to follow someone, maybe it's a leader, someone that you would work for at this new company, or some person or persons that you would work with at this other company, if they are the primary reasons you went to this other company, what will you do when they leave? Do you have a plan for that? Can you mitigate that risk somehow in the effort you put into building relationships with others at that company in the meantime? I think it's just one of those things that we should consider before making a decision. And I hadn't really thought about it before this discussion with Brad. And despite those people leaving that he really liked and trusted and enjoyed working with, his responsibilities changed. And I don't think we should assume that that kind of thing just happens at a startup. Your job responsibilities could change at any point. You know that other duties as a sign asterisk on your job description that maybe hasn't been handed to you or updated in a while? It's there. That shift is always possible. And I admire the fact that Brad was willing to lean into that. And without leaning into that, he never would have pursued and learned FinOps, which he mentioned has been extremely helpful to him as a technologist to learn that. And it could be helpful to you as well. If you're looking for other stories of people leaning into changes in their job assignment that they couldn't necessarily control, how about Shalvi Vaklu in episode 210? She was given the choice of be laid off or take this other job. And that is what tipped her into data science. So who knows, that shift could be an opportunity in disguise that you never saw coming. We also heard that moving to the startup was a chance for Brad to apply some of the skills he had, but to build something from scratch. That's exciting, especially if you've never been able to build something from scratch. You're just maintaining or modifying something that's already there. I can certainly see the attractiveness of that. The description of the player coach that Brad shared with us is interesting. 
I consider this to be slightly different than maybe the way others have expressed their opinion on it. But part of being the coach and the player was truly being involved or involved as much as you can in what the individual contributors on your team are doing. Can you be part of and help out with some of the things they're doing? Not in a micromanagerial way, but in a way to where you get to work with that person in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's, maybe it's more of the opportunity to collaborate with that person as the player coach. Maybe there's something you can learn and something they can learn and be coached on at the same time. This also makes me think back to the episodes we recorded with Charlie Nickel in episodes 51 and 52, where Charlie tells the story of stepping on one of his individual contributors' toes and not giving that person the chance to be the hero or solve the problem. So remember, if you are going to be that player coach, make sure you give your individual contributors a chance to shine. Let's just recap the things that surrounded Brad's certification choices. He needed structure, so he had self-knowledge. He knew how he worked best and the things that he needed to help him focus and stay on track and work towards something. He also knew the kind of tests he enjoyed taking and had done well on in the past, the live lab or simulated test rather than maybe just a multiple-choice test, for example. He had this willingness to lean in and learn. He was excited about learning new things, and wanted to get more technical. Many times when we choose something on which we need to be certified or want to be certified, we have to make a bet or a selection of which technology stack to go with. You'll get to hear more about the decision-making process that Brad used to pick things like the Red Hat certification and the Kubernetes certification as focus areas for him currently and in the future. But all that is coming next week. We'll see you then. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman. For Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore. Signing off. Adios. Adios.